I took this class called We the People in high school. It's a national competition class. And, you know, after the competition kind of aspect is over, you, in my class, we just learned about moot court and redistricting and gerrymandering and civil rights law and civil liberties. This is Sunny Wachning. I'm program manager and voting rights counsel at the UCLA Voting Rights Project. Wait, so back in the day, Sunny was a we the peopler? We know a lot about We the People. We do indeed. We get to judge it every year in New Hampshire. Uh, It's a competition where high school students expound on the meaning, virtues, and pitfalls of the Constitution and its application. So, Sunny is in high school, very much tuned into the Constitution, and it's 2013. That was a big year for voting rights. I was very closely watching the Shelby County case. I graduated high school in 2013. I graduated high school the day that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Section 4B, the preclearance formula that gutted the Voting Rights Act. And at least for now, uh, Jake, the bottom line is that uh, these southern states, largely southern states that had these special requirements that the federal government imposed in that 1965 a Voting Rights Act, uh, they are no longer going to have to deal with that, at least for the time being, unless Congress takes special action. And as I said, I don't anticipate that special action anytime soon. And I decided right then and there, just sitting there, that I was going to go and be a voting rights lawyer. So what happened? In 2013, what makes a teenager sitting at her graduation set a career path then and there? What is the Voting Rights Act and what has happened to it? That is what we are here to answer. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we are talking about a sweeping piece of legislation that changed voting for millions of Americans. But when we talk about the Voting Rights Act today... It is in the wake of some significant Supreme Court rulings. We are also talking about Shelby County v. Holder, about Branovich v. Democratic National Committee, about Mobile v. Bolton. But before we can get there, the act has to happen. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. This law will ensure them the right to vote. That's President Lyndon B. Johnson on the day he signed the VRA, which, in its own words, prohibits states from imposing any, quote, voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure to deny or abridge the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color, unquote. And the Voting Rights Act happened for a reason, right? A huge reason. Can we start there? Many people predicted violence. Negro groups trained themselves to overwhelm it. Armed with portable two-way radios, volunteers scattered throughout the march would keep watch. Should violence come then that day, they would call for help. There was a lot of state violence towards primarily black and African-American citizens in the United States who had the legal right to vote, but they were you know, unable to access the franchise, and it could be because there was actual violence. They would come to your house, um, and they, you know, would threaten you. Um, unfortunately, people were lynched during this time period for registering people to vote, for trying to... And that's just even to try to register to go on the rolls. So not even to access the polling booth, but to register. 
You also had these targeted obstacles specifically designed to disenfranchise non-white voters. Poll taxes, which was a prerequisite fee that you had to pay in order to register to vote, literacy tests that you had to pass in order to vote, and grandfather clauses that exempted you from obstacles if your father or grandfather had voted prior to the abolition of slavery. In other words, if you were the descendant of white people. Pretty much. And these vote denial practices, this violence against black Americans that Sonny mentioned, it was all a part of the Jim Crow era. This was a period in the United States that lasted from around 1870 to 1964, and it was typified by laws and practices that oppressed and abused black people in this country. And this era really started with the end of Reconstruction, right? This is when federal troops withdrew from the South, and there was no longer anyone around to enforce the Reconstruction Acts and protect black American rights. And so much of that era, Nick, was about keeping black Americans away from the vote. Because when Reconstruction began... Well, it it was a historic moment, a great moment. Black participation was amazingly active. There were even two United States senators who were African-American, a number of congressmen. But that period, alas, did not last very long. This is Gary May, author of Bending Toward Justice, The Voting Rights Act and the Transformation of American Democracy. When federal troops withdrew from the South, the Democratic Party gained pretty much total control. The Democratic Party, as a quick reminder, held very different values at this time. And one of those prevailing values was the disenfranchisement of black Americans. And the story of the long and persistent black American fight to regain the right to enfranchisement is where the Voting Rights Act is rooted. It's a a remarkable story because you on the one hand you have the advances of the reconstruction period and then retreats and that's how their story goes by the early 20th century african americans they had lost the right to vote they'd gone from thousands to again a handful particularly in in the southern states so uh, it came very quickly the advance and then it's a retreat and we're in that period again Wow, so can you go over what specifically was driving those minuscule numbers? How did we go from thousands of active black voters to so few? You had African-Americans participating as much as they could, at least trying to vote. And the the obstacles were uh, terrible. They had to do oral testing. And they received such questions as, Uh, How many bubbles in a bar of soap? How many uh, judges are in Alabama, for example? There were some 67 of them, and they were supposed to name them one by one. And if they made one mistake, the most minor of mistakes, uh, that would be enough to disqualify them. Sometimes uh, a group would go to the local courthouse to register to vote, And if, say, there were 12 men and women who came that day uh, and 10, say, passed the questions, but the other two failed, everyone was failed. And like Sonny said earlier, Hannah, it wasn't just laws or official practices keeping black Americans away from the polls. There was also violence. Lots of it. And a lot of it specific to voting. Okoye, Florida. 
There was an altercation, a couple of activists in, in the voting rights movement, July Perry, Mose Norman. There was a confrontation between them and the white segregationists, and uh, they wound up dead. And, and most of the town was wiped out. This is called the Okoe Massacre. It is estimated that between 30 and 35 black individuals were murdered on November 2nd, 1920. Most black-owned homes and businesses were destroyed. Hundreds of black individuals fled, and others who stayed were later murdered or driven out. All because that man who Gary mentioned, Mose Norman, tried to vote. What's so extraordinary is, is how these people persisted. I mean, they would go back to the courthouse to register, and despite the rejection time after time, they kept on going. I feel like this is at the heart of the story of the Voting Rights Act. So often, when we talk about why a civil right was enshrined, we talk about the oppression, the lack of autonomy or choice, the violence that preceded it. But ultimately, often, the reason something changes for the better is that a lot of people for a long time demanded that change. It was primarily young people uh, in their 20s who joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. They were the shock troops of the Civil Rights Movement. I'm Willie Peacock, a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. At present, I'm working in Greenwood, Mississippi, in Lower Fork County, on voter registration. As important as Dr. King's role is in all of this, we've again forgotten so many, again, of these, these young people who uh, would pick a, a location For example, one of them went to Selma to work on voting rights. And again, they they risked their lives. In in one case, a young man was uh, eventually attacked by Selma citizens, but he left that attack. His clothes were bloody. He was told by local activists, you know, go wash yourself. Your clothes are ripped and torn. You've bled all over them. He said, no, I'm not going to clean myself up. I'm going to let people see what the cost of segregation is. So he continued to uh, promote voting rights, despite the fact of being uh, bloody and beaten. This is something that Gary emphasized over and over, that yes, there were very public and connected and essential leaders of the civil rights movement like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then there were the individuals in towns across the country doing anything they could to push for this American right. There were just so many of them. One person who comes to mind was a preacher from Belzoni, Mississippi, named George Washington Lee, who had been very active in the voting rights movement and encouraged his parishioners to sign up to vote. And he, too, was shot and killed by the Ku Klux Klan. And, of course, nothing happened with the case. The local sheriff refused to prosecute it. And uh, when they examined Lee's body, which had been very badly shotgunned to death, local sheriff said, oh, oh, those those are dental fillings, not shotguns and shells. And that was the end of that story. Uh, And there were so many like him, men, women, and children who just gave up everything, their jobs, their careers, 
and in, in Lee's case, his life, to fight for what should be an elementary right of every American. And politicians and presidents did eventually have to acknowledge the undeniable racism, disenfranchisement, wounding, and killing of black Americans across the country. I mean, wasn't that the driver behind the Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1964? It was. So my question is, why, Hannah, if we passed an act in 1964 specifically geared towards protecting rights, regardless of the color of your skin or your sex or your religion, why then did we still need the Voting Rights Act? Well, that particular Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was our third, by the way, tried to take care of the voting problem. The first section of the act specifically bans unequal application of voter registration requirements. It does not, however, ban burdensome requirements themselves, which tended to be, and were designed to be, particularly onerous to racial minorities, low-income people, and people of a certain level of education. The 1964 Civil Rights Act also fails to address retaliation and violence against non-white people trying to vote. So these are some pretty big loopholes. Yeah, and you give states loopholes and they'll take them, right? And states continued to. And President Lyndon B. Johnson watched. President Johnson had been um, kind of ambivalent about creating a Voting Rights Act. Yes, he wanted to do it, but he was aware of the fact that he had passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And he, he didn't feel that he had the authority, the power, the acceptance to now do a, another huge voting rights bill. What changed that, of course, was Bloody Sunday. To be detrimental to your safety, to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, you have to disperse, you are ordered to disperse, go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. Troopers here, we had a group of marchers uh, led by John Lewis uh, and other uh, activists, and they they were attacked by troops on horseback, cattle prods, almost lost their lives. Attacked by these troops beaten, shocked by cattle prods. And uh, what was so uh, effective was that ABC that Sunday had shown a movie, Judgment at Nuremberg, about the Nuremberg war trials. And that was interrupted to bring the country the first footage of Bloody Sunday. And the result was people now going to work with Dr. King. They wanted to join this movement. They wanted to to be a part of it. Wait, this really happened? Oh, yeah. People actually tuned in to watch a movie about the Nuremberg trials and what they saw was coverage of the attacks in Selma? So it's, it's extraordinary that Americans got their story, in this case, through television. And it personalized. People could feel for what was happening to African-Americans. And Johnson felt he could now call upon the Congress to pass this legislation. 
August 6, 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. It became the enforcer of something that was already in the Constitution, the 15th Amendment. That's the amendment that says the right to vote of citizens of the United States shall not be denied or abridged based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was there. And Nick, you know when a president signs a major bill into law, he gives ceremonial pens to people in the audience? Yeah. So MLK received the first, which, yeah, it's kind of like the least you can do. The act specifically banned literacy tests and other devices used to disenfranchise minority voters. It prohibited intimidation, harassment, or coercion of a person attempting to vote. It prohibited someone from acting under color of law to stop someone from voting. It protected minorities from vote dilution. And it established a special formula for identifying discriminatory jurisdictions. And those jurisdictions got special provisions. All right, I mostly don't know what any of that means. Yeah, great. That's what this show is for. So let's go through it, right? The literacy tests you've got, right? Yeah, those are things that test your reading ability and comprehension. And if you fail, it prohibits you from voting, which I know disproportionately affected low-income Americans, immigrants, and black Americans. Right, so that's out, as are the ridiculous obstacles that Gary mentioned earlier. Like guessing the number of bubbles on a bar of soap or naming every judge in your state. All right, next, uh, harassment and intimidation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've got that one. All right, color of law, Nick? I don't actually know what color of law means. Yeah, uh, I had to look this up. Acting under color of law is when a person claims they are acting in accordance with the law and as an agent of it, but in actual fact might be violating the law. So, like, if the sheriff arrests somebody in line to vote because they're the sheriff but they don't have probable cause, that's acting under color of law to prevent voting. Sure, or even if an election official prevents an eligible person from voting, claiming they have the authority, that's acting under color of law. And by the way, the Voting Rights Act also, very importantly, established that the Attorney General of the United States had the ability to enforce provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Got it. Next, vote dilution. Is this something to do with the gerrymandering? I'm just, I'm not familiar with that term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, It might be better understood as minority gerrymandering. All right, got it. So this could happen if the residents of a state typically engage in racially polarized voting. Okay, and that's like the minority group typically votes one way and the majority group typically votes the other way? Yeah. If district lines are then drawn in such a way that the minority racial group will never be able to elect its preferred candidate... That is minority vote dilution. The Voting Rights Act made that illegal. All right, and the last thing you mentioned was something about a special formula and special provisions? This, Nick, was a significant enforcement part of the Voting Rights Act. Congress created something that they called a coverage formula. If a state had proved particularly discriminatory according to the formula, which takes a look at the use of literacy tests and other devices, as well as voter registration and turnout, that state would be, quote-unquote, covered. If a state or jurisdiction had proved particularly discriminatory according to the formula, which takes a look at the use of literacy tests and other devices, as well as uh, voter registration and turnout, that state or jurisdiction would be, quote-unquote, covered. 
Now, if a covered jurisdiction was actively problematic, the attorney general could send in federal examiners to register voters, maintain voter rolls, and examine voter registration applications. These examiners could also observe poll workers and voter conduct on Election Day. So the goal of all that, essentially, it's just to make sure that the Voting Rights Act is being followed in places where there are signs that it's not being followed. Right, which is also to say to make sure that the 14th and 15th Amendments are being followed. Okay. Okay, Nick, one last big thing. Those covered jurisdictions were subject to something called preclearance. One of the important aspects of the Voting Rights Act was something that's called preclearance. The act required that in states that were covered by the Voting Rights Act, that before they could change any important aspect of voting, they had to get the permission of the Justice Department or a federal judge. And uh, after uh, Shelby County, it was weakened. The story of what became of the Voting Rights Act is coming up after the break. But first, and here is the honest-to-goodness truth, all of us here at Civics 101 know the nation has changed and is changing. We know laws are coming and going. We know half of what we explained today could be gone tomorrow. So we're trying to keep up. We're doing our best to give you the tools to understand it all. We don't want you to miss it. We don't want you to feel confused. That is the whole point of this podcast. We want you to understand United States government and law. To do that, we have to keep this show up and running. And to do that, we rely on donations from those who have the ability to give. If you have the time and the spare change, consider making a donation at civics101podcast.org. There's also a link in the show notes. Do it because you want to keep knowing. Thanks. We're back. We're talking about the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And you left us on a bit of a cliffhanger. Which I learned from Carolyn Keene. Is that a Nancy Drew reference? Yeah, every single chapter pretty much ends with Nancy being locked in a closet in an abandoned tower. Um, So let's unlock the door. The Voting Rights Act is signed in August 1965. It enforces the 15th Amendment designed to finally support the registration and voting of black Americans. So you've told me what the act was designed to do. So now my question is, did it actually work? Did it actually do those things? It did. Racial discrimination in voting decreased. Registration of black Americans increased. By the end of 1965, a quarter of a million new black voters had been registered to vote. A third of those voters, Nick, were registered by federal examiners. A third? Oh, yeah. Wow. And right before the break... We talked about a significant provision in the Voting Rights Act. If a state had been discriminatory in the past, it had to get approval from the federal government if it wanted to add or change election and voting law and procedures. This is called preclearance. Here's Sonny Wachnin again, the voting rights lawyer who is paying close attention to the fate of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. If you're really bad, you're, and you're covered under this formula for like historic discrimination because your voter rolls, you have, you know, a high minority population, your voter rolls show very little minority population. We're going to make you go ask the federal government or a court in D.C. for a mother may I. And this applied to everything. If you were a covered jurisdiction and you wanted to close a polling location, like even one polling location, you had to go ask someone if you were allowed to do that. Now, I've noticed, Hannah, 
there has been a lot of past tense language going on here when you and Sonny are talking about the VRA. And Sonny just said applied, as in it used to. Correct. Because something happened to that coverage, didn't it? Something did. And that something's name is Shelby. Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes speaks to current conditions. The coverage formula, unchanged for 40 years, plainly does not do so, and therefore we have no choice but to find that it violates the Constitution. Justice Thomas has filed a concurring opinion. Justice Ginsburg has filed a dissenting opinion in which Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan have joined. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and I are of the view that Congress's decision to renew the Act and keep the coverage formula was an altogether rational means to serve the end of achieving what was once the subject of a dream, the equal citizenship stature of all in our polity, a voice to every voter in our democracy, undiluted by race. So here's the environment in which Shelby v. Holder came before the Supreme Court. You have new people who are coming onto the court um, during the second Bush administration. You have Alito who joins the court. Um, John Roberts becomes the chief justice during this period. And so you have a little turning of like people who are not so supportive of voting rights. And after the 2008 election, which was uh, a lot of people say like a rejiggering of the political playing field, you also have a really intense focus on redistricting and on controlling power. 2008, of course, was when Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. And you have states who are really focused now on redistricting as a way to gain back power, right? Redistricting becomes more partisan during 2010 and 2011, um, and it actually results in this huge shift. All this money is going to state legislatures to redistrict. However, states that want to do a lot of partisan and racial districting um, and racial gerrymandering that are in the South can't do that because they had to go ask the federal government, either the attorney general's office or you'd have to go to a court in D.C. to approve of your redistricting bills. Okay, so there's a sea change in the politicking around voting. There is, partially because the midterms of 2010 in backlash to Obama significantly changed the political leanings of the legislature. And to be clear, even prior to this period, things had started to shift. In the 1980s, the court took up a case called Mobile versus Bolden. And so um, in Mobile versus Bolden, the Supreme Court had held that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, you had to prove intentional discrimination. Now, that's a really high bar. It's extraordinarily hard. It, It has only actually gotten harder to prove intentional discrimination in the jurisprudence. Courts now... And I would say the Supreme Court really want to see people saying explicitly racist things. Um, They want this direct smoking gun evidence. Generally, you don't have that. Or, you know, they say that if they want everyone to to be the racist, right? It wasn't enough that the main person caused, like, said on the record that they were doing something to harm certain voters. They're like, yeah, but not everyone said that who voted for the bill. Just the main person who wrote the bill. So if we jump ahead to Shelby v. Holder, what year was that again? Uh, 2013. Okay, 2013. 
even though this Mobile v. Bolden decision had happened, we still did have preclearance, right? Yeah. And that meant many jurisdictions, including a lot of jurisdictions in the South, that wanted to change voting itself along political lines, couldn't get it done. Yeah, and they were not very happy about that. So you've got these jurisdictions that feel fettered by the Voting Rights Act, and you've got major ideological shifts in Congress and the Supreme Court. Sunny says it was the perfect storm of a time to go after the Voting Rights Act. So this case gets brought um, from Shelby Counties in South Carolina, um, which is kind of fitting. The state that challenged the the name is the name plaintiff in the case that upheld the Voting Rights Act. It's challenging now the Voting Rights Act once again. And Chief Justice Roberts authors the opinion gutting the formula, the coverage formula, Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act, um, saying that the South had changed. That the justification for the Voting Rights Act was that the South was a bad actor and Southern jurisdictions needed the federal government to step in and to make sure that they were ensuring voting protections for their citizens, especially their citizens of color. And the act had worked extraordinarily well. You had increased voter registration. Some of the highest turnout in American history had been in 2008. You had more electeds of color, um, and especially local electeds of color joining in. And you still had preclearance, and so there was less discriminatory redistricting. So the justification was that we don't need this anymore. This is like a huge burden. What's interesting, though, is that they don't say in the majority opinion that preclearance is unconstitutional. They just say that the coverage formula, because it hadn't been updated since the um, 60s, the coverage formula was, was unconstitutional. But without the formula, you can't say a state is covered. And without covered states, preclearance loses all its teeth and meaning, right? Well, kind of. Sunny explained that a state can still be what's called bailed into the preclearance structure. Uh, a federal court can place them under federal scrutiny for a period of time. And since the Shelby County decision, Nick, there has been an increase in preclearance lawsuits from individuals, from groups who claim that their state has violated the non-discriminatory element of the Voting Rights Act. So that's my question right now, Hannah. There's still the rest of the Voting Rights Act, right? Importantly, the part that emphasizes that you cannot have a practice or procedure that discriminates based on race, which is the point of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, and not just race and color. Certain language minorities were later added to the law as well. You know, people who speak a language that's not predominant in an area. Here's the thing, though. Back when the coverage formula was in place, discriminatory jurisdictions had to prove that their voting and elections changes were not discriminatory. The burden of proof was on them. Now it's the other way around. A government or private party has to prove that their jurisdiction is being discriminatory. The burden of proof has shifted. And remember that 1980 case, Mobile versus Bolden, where the court ruled that you didn't just have to show discrimination, you had to show intentional discrimination? That is really, really hard to do. Then comes Branovich in 2021. In that case, what was really interesting is, you know, one of the, the challenges 
to the law was about native voting. Um, It made it tremendously hard for native voters to be able to cast ballots. Native voters in Arizona primarily live in northern Arizona. It's very rural. Um, They have a huge lack of access to, you know, drop boxes, polling places, all of these other things. And the language that legislators used to pass this, like, vote denial bill was specifically targeting, they used racialized language against Native Native Americans in Arizona. And that kind of gets lost because what we looked at was like statistical harm. And there was this other challenge about out-of-voting precincts, whereas, you know, you had legislators say things on the record that the Ninth Circuit said were racially discriminatory and showed intent. Um, but the Supreme Court said it wasn't good enough because not everyone said it. Justice Samuel Alito authored the majority opinion. He took the opportunity to lay out some guidelines for future challenges to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, not a binding test, but an indication of how the court would evaluate voting rights cases in the future. Now, those guidelines include uh, considering the strength of a state's interests, like in preventing voter fraud or something, in the challenged legislation. And considering the differences in how that legislation affects racial or ethnic groups. Of course, in Bronovich itself, the court set a higher bar for that racial disparity question. In her dissent, Justice Elena Kagan pointed out recent discriminatory voter law and expressed concern that the Bronovich decision was essentially weakening the Voting Rights Act. So what does all of this mean for the effect of the Voting Rights Act? I mean, is it still the same thing that passed in 1965? Well, Congress has taken steps to reaffirm, extend, and strengthen the VRA. For example, after that 1980 Mobile versus Bolden case, they added a line saying, quote, restates the prohibition against voting discrimination to include as violative conduct, which has the effect of discrimination. Effect, not intent. But so much depends on what the court rules. And Sonny told me there is another opinion coming down the pike. And so that's what still exists today and what's in danger um, with the uh, Merrill case that got taken up. It's the Alabama redistricting case that got taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, there are people on that court um, who authored the Shelby County decision who have showed hostility to voting. We should know by June of 2023 whether or not we have Section 2 left of the Voting Rights Act. And if we don't, things are going to be dramatically different. Now, I know there's always this distinction between what SCOTUS decides and what Congress can do. Like if the Supreme Court eliminates a federal right, there are then calls upon Congress to enshrine it in law instead. And the Voting Rights Act exists because of Congress, not because the Supreme Court offered an opinion about the 15th Amendment. So does Congress have a plan for voting rights? Well, they've tried. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which strengthens portions of the VRA and uh, restores some of what was eliminated in Shelby and Branovich, has failed several times in Congress, most recently as of the publishing of this episode in the Senate in 2022, where it didn't even make it to a vote. But there is one important thing that Sonny brought up when it comes to voting rights. And it has nothing to do with the Supreme Court or Congress. What you can do, though, is lobby your state legislature to pass a state-level Voting Rights Act. 
Federal protections are a floor, not a ceiling, and states can always be doing more and passing their own laws, especially because most states in the United States, I believe 48 of them, have their own election clauses that guarantee free and fair elections. And so that means that you can pass a Voting Rights Act under the state constitution because it'll actually be enshrining constitutional protections and statutory language. As always, when the federal government fails to act, you can count on New York to punch back and fight even harder. We will not rest. We will not rest while these injustices continue. As I said, we did it with abortion. We did it with reproductive freedom. We did it with gun legislation. And now we're doing it again with voting rights. I think it's important to remember what the Voting Rights Act was designed to do. Put an end to rampant discrimination, yes, but by way of enforcing the 15th Amendment. It was explicitly called an act to enforce the 15th Amendment. There is an unambiguous constitutional right that this act is designed to enforce. And that right isn't going away, at least not yet. The right to vote shall not be abridged because of race, color, or creed. What's so difficult about that? It should be the most harmless thing in the world. This is what America is about. To oppose that is to oppose America itself. Produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Nick Capadice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode from Sven Lindvall, Daniel Friedel, Nuisance, Jack Adkins, Hollisna, Frank Johnson, Pulsed, El Flaco Collective, OTE, Penny Lane, and Romaro. If you're like us and you just can't get enough of civics in this world, you should subscribe to our newsletter. It's called Extra Credit. It is pure joy and trivia and fun rants, and it comes out every other Tuesday. And it's a really good excuse to just take five minutes and learn something new. You can find the link at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.